take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Titus. To the book of Titus. We'll be in chapter 3 this morning. And we're actually going to be concluding our, our series in Titus this morning. We have a kind of a long way to go, but we're going to get there. We're going to get there. And next week, just so you know what we're going to be studying, uh, we're going to begin coming alongside the study that you're doing in Bible study uh, before church and in Luke. And so each week, for the next several weeks, as we approach Easter, we will be doing a passage within the 400 verses that you're studying each Sunday morning for the Bible study in Luke. I don't think it will be too repetitive since uh, you're just having to lightly scan just about all of it to get through it. So we'll come alongside Luke and be doing that for the, for the Easter season. As we approach the, the text in Titus this morning, uh, if I can get the children's attention for just a moment. Children, there are two things that I want you to remember this morning. Two things. I want you to remember what God did for us in Jesus. Okay, Remember what God did for us in Jesus, through Jesus. And then, the second thing, that because of what God does for us in Jesus, we obey God. So remember what God did for us through Jesus, and then because of what God did for us in Jesus, we obey Him. If I was to ask you, if I were to ask you, why do you love God? Everyone, what should your immediate response be? Does any immediate response? Because He first loved us. Because He first loved us. As we walk through this passage, you will see that it is consistent with everything that Paul has already been teaching in the book of Titus. Many of our sermons were entitled, Doctrine and Duty. You see, Paul can't go far without mentioning the cross and the resurrection, salvation through Christ. But every time he mentions that, he then follows with what it looks like for us to be obedient and to live within what Jesus has done for us. You see, salvation... Why it is always by grace, it is never by itself. It's always followed with a faithful life, with a godly life. A godly life. So this morning, the title of our sermon this morning is is actually part two of what we studied last week. Where do we need to be reminded? And this morning, as we we concluded with this last week, just briefly, the first place we need to be reminded is where, what God did for us. What God did for us. Last week, as we looked at the the final verses of our text, it told us to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And the motivation behind this was, we ourselves were once foolish. We ourselves were once disobedient people. But when the goodness and kindness of, of our God appeared, He saved us. You see, what motivates us towards compassion to all people is because of what God did for us. And then the second thing that we need to be reminded of this morning is what the gospel does. You see, the gospel not only just saves us and does something at one point in our life, but, but it continues to do something in our lives. It drives everything that we do. And so this morning, we need to be reminded of what God has done, and we need to be reminded of how that affects every day. Every day. So will you stand with me this morning, and we will read Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 15. Beginning in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, 
He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to spend, speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. You may be seated. Father, we pray that you would make your word very clear this morning. Lord, the grace and kindness that you display in Christ to all of us, Father, I pray that it would be heard that it would be received. For those who have not received you, Lord, may they recognize the grace that you offer. And to those who believe that they can know you, but not necessarily walk any differently, Father, may their hearts be gripped this morning. May they know, Lord, that your salvation demands, it demands a change of life, a radical change. Lord, make your word clear. Show us how we're to be obedient. And God, may your light shine brightly to us, through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We begin this morning with what God did. What God did for us. And this consists of two aspects. If you'll take out your notes this morning at, that are in the bulletin, you'll see this consists of two aspects. The first is going to be the historical appearance of God. Of how he has revealed himself to us. The second is going to be the personal experience because while God has shown us grace, he's made his grace visible, that grace has to be appropriated to your life, to every individual life. The historical appearance means nothing for you if you don't believe it and receive it. And so there are two aspects, the historical appearance and the personal experience. Now as we begin with the historical appearance... We said this a couple weeks ago, that when Christians speak of grace, they're not speaking solely of a concept, but they're speaking of a person. You see, when we talk about grace or when we talk about love, we're not just talking about some concept that we're trying to figure out what it means. 
We've seen grace. We see love when we look at the person of Jesus, his entire life, his death, and his resurrection. We see grace in Jesus. It's not a concept. Listen, hear this. It's not a concept. It is a person. So in the historical appearance, this is in verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Now when Paul says this, he's using a very subversive term. It says when the kindness and goodness of God our loving Savior, it appeared. This word appeared, it's from the word epiphany. That's where we get our word epiphany. Something is revealed to us. It's kind of a a revelation. Well, in this time period, when the Romans spoke of of their new ruler, of their new rulers, they actually called them a soter, a savior. Their rulers were described as saviors. And they were described as, when they came on the scene, a new ruler, as appearing in this same terminology. So when Paul says this, he's being very subversive and he's saying, the Savior is not the emperor, the Savior is Jesus Christ, and he has appeared. God has shown himself to us through Jesus Christ. And there are two uh, examples, two illustrations of who this God is he is his goodness. It says, when the goodness of God our Savior appeared. This is just a description of moral goodness. You see, God is the epitome of goodness. He's the standard that all of us are aware of, but none of us can attain. All of us sense in the, our hearts a, a moral law that is even higher than ourselves. He is kindness. This word means kindness. And God's kindness is to lead us to repentance. This is what this word goodness means. When I see this, I think of Romans 2.4. It says, do you have contempt for the wealth of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? And yet do not know that God's kindness is to lead you to repentance? God is kind in the sense that when we come to him and then we confess what we've done, he forgives us. But he's not kind in the sense that he just passes over our sins. They must be acknowledged by us. They must be repented of. It reminds me of 1 John 4.18 that says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You see, God's goodness is that when we come, means that when we are willing to come to him and acknowledge our sins, he is perfectly willing to forgive us and lavish his love on us. When I think of this, I, I think of a loving father. You see, a loving father doesn't just forgive and never discipline. A loving father disciplines, but he disciplines in grace. He loves his child, so he wants that child to know what's good, and so he disciplines even severely at times. But he forgives. And so children who have loving fathers, they understand what this text means, what God's goodness means, that when they are willing to come forward with their sins, own up to them, that God is willing to forgive. If you haven't had a loving father, know that God, he is a loving father. He's not like your father. He is the great father. He is the loving father and he will forgive. 
And so God's goodness has appeared. We've seen it in Jesus Christ. That if we are willing to come to him, he will forgive our sins. But it is not only goodness, but it's this loving kindness. The next word that describes God. This is actually the word from which we get philanthropy, which is a a love for mankind. We know from many scriptures that God loves mankind. John 3.16 is one that is most familiar. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever, we know that the world is speaking of people, of mankind. Because it says, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved mankind that he sent his son to die for their sins. And Luke 6.35 God tells us to love our enemies, but listen to the basis for this. Jesus says, love your enemies, then you will be a son of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You see, God lavishes his love on people, not when people are good, but when they are at their worst. That is when God saved you. It is not because you showed some potential of goodness. You may have heard before people say, God saw that you were a good investment, and so he came and saved you and invested in you. That's not true. You weren't a good investment. You were walking in evil and in wickedness. And at your most wicked point, God came and he said, I will love you, I will redeem you, and I will make you capable of doing good. So, when Jesus appeared, This is an historical appearance. We must, when we refer to Jesus, look to his historical existence, the way that he lived, the things that he said. When he appeared, he appeared, showed us the moral goodness, the greatness of our Father, and he showed us the love that he has for mankind. It was at this point when Jesus came that he expressed this salvation. You see, your salvation did not come just when you were 13. Your your salvation was from the foundations of the world. And so, this is when your salvation was achieved. But, salvation must be experienced. We can have this historical reference point from which we can say, yes, God has shown his loving kindness, but if you don't experience this, it does not matter. It will not affect you. For salvation, it will affect you in damnation. Separation from God. So there must be the personal experience. This is the second part. And then this is in verses 5 through 7. It says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Again, there's nothing you can do that can make you more available to be saved. (laughs) It's nothing you do. But according to his own mercy, again, it's within the character of God that he saves people. By the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice the Trinitarian aspect of this salvation, that God saves us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Two persons of the Trinity. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we are justified through Christ, we might become heirs of the hope of eternal life. This is a Trinitarian work. 
The salvation that God has done, He has done Himself and the Holy Spirit and Christ Jesus. Let's look at this personal experience and the aspects of it. First, we were washed through regeneration. This is in verse 5. The word regeneration means the production of a new life that is consecrated to God. There's an, uh, an illustration that uh, John Chrysostom, he was called Golden Tongue. He was in the early church, very early church. And he used the illustration, and I think this could be very familiar for us. If you worked in New Orleans after Katrina, you had the opportunity to go down, and there were many many houses that were kind of be, they were being gutted. And they would just see, could these houses eventually just be repaired and used? And then there were many houses that even, they had no chance. You not only needed to gut them, you needed to tear them down and rebuild them. You see, what happens in regeneration is that we're not gutted. We're completely reborn. We're rebuilt. It's all of us. God has not repaired us, but he has made us all new. This is what happens in regeneration. And then we are renewed. It's renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration and renewal are basically synonyms that Paul is using for emphasis. You have been completely renewed. This is where 2 Corinthians 5 comes from. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has gone, the new has come. Friends, in Christ Jesus, you were able to do things that you could not do before. You are a different person. So regeneration and renewal, these are both works that are done by the Holy Spirit. The baptism, baptism is the picture we get from this. I was trying to explain, I was explaining baptism last Sunday for the children. I think I probably learned more than they did. But in baptism, there's the picture of going down into the water and coming up. It's the picture of renewal, of being washed, cleansed. And so we have new life. And as we always say during baptism, this is just a picture. Nothing actually happens in baptism that makes you new. But it's a picture of what our, God already does in the heart. So we were regenerated, we were renewed through the Holy Spirit, but we are also justified through Christ Jesus. This is in verse 6, or 7, I'm sorry. So that being justified by His grace, Christ Jesus our Savior, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. Justification is a legal term, and it means that God declares us righteous through the sin-bearing death of His Son. You see, regeneration means that he makes us righteous through the indwelling power of the Spirit. But justification means that he declares us righteous. Justification is a status. He looks on you through the death of his son and he says, you are righteous. He sees you as righteous. So justification refers to a new status. Regeneration refers to a new birth. But listen to this quote. This is very important. God always does both together. He never justifies people without the same time regenerating them. And he never regenerates them without justifying them. So friend, this is what happened at your salvation, at the event of salvation when God saved you. He gave you a new life. He breathed new life into you so that you could do good. You would be alive for good works. Before you were dead and you sought evil. You lived for yourself. But in the life of the Holy Spirit, you seek good. You walk by the Holy Spirit. You resist evil. But then he also 
justified you through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, which means he no longer looks at you yourself and sees your works, but he sees the work of Christ, which means you are righteous in his sight. He does not see the stain of evil that you did before, but he sees you as righteous, as perfect, unblemished, as white, clean. This is what happened in salvation. The last aspect we'll mention is we were made heirs of God and given eternal life. This is at the end of verse 7. It was by justification, by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The word heirs we know just means that you will receive what is from God. You become an heir, a child of God, and so you receive what is God's. The hope we discussed earlier in our Titus series, when we're talking about Christian hope, we're not just talking about something that might happen. We think it might. It's out there, but we're waiting for it. We, we, we really hope that it does, but we're not for sure. Christian hope is based in the promises of God that never fail. It has been achieved. We're just waiting for it to come to fruition. I believe I used the illustration of a child, that is a baby that is going to be born. You have all the visual aspects. You know it's there. You know it's coming. But you're waiting to hold it, to behold the child. And this is what is happening with the promises of God. We know they're coming. We know God will be faithful. But we wait to behold them. So this is the hope that we have. It is certain. It will happen. But it is for eternal life. Now, this concept can be somewhat confusing. Because all people will be resurrected, right? Even those who are not children of God will live forever separated from God. So eternal life. What does this mean that God's children get eternal life? You see, in this time, this isn't just length of life that we're talking about. It's a type of life. It's a quality of life. It was even during, it was Jesus' proclamation that they could have life now. When Jesus was on earth, he said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, when Jesus offers eternal life, it's not just a length of life. It's a type of life. It is an abundant life. And so, friends, God, Jesus doesn't offer you eternal life just for one day down the road when you die. Eternal life is now. Now. Now you live in his kingdom. His kingdom is coming. You live waiting for it, but you even live now in light of it. And so eternal life, the hope of eternal life, is not just length of life, but it's a type of life that God is offering to you. Now just as a reminder, as we talk about what we need to be reminded of, of not being ungracious to people who do not live as Christians do, we just talked about what God did in our lives. That all these things, God did it. And so friends, what you need to be reminded of is you did not do it. And you can't expect others to do it for themselves. And so do not be cruel to those who do not know God. Do not be ungracious. Do not be impatient. Friends, God was gracious to you. You extend grace to others. You show the loving kindness of God and of Christ Jesus. You did not do it, and you cannot expect others to do it to themselves. But you extend it. We need to be reminded of what God has done. 
of what he has worked in our hearts. But we also need to be reminded of what this gospel good news does. What does it continue to do? How does it continue to work out in our lives? And the first thing we see is that it stirs up good works. It stirs up good works. I like to think of when I was younger and I I would stand by a puddle of water. I I like to see the, the ripple effect. The ripple effect. And so I would throw a rock in a pond or something like that and just continue to do it just to see the, the water get stirred up and the continual rip, ripple effect. This is what the gospel does in your life. When you meditate on the gospel, it causes a ripple effect. When you think about what God has done in your life in Christ Jesus, it pushes you so that you say, I need to be faithful to God because he's shown love to me. He's been gracious to me. And so it works itself out. It works itself out in fear and trembling out of gratitude for what God has done. So, let's look at this first aspect of good works in verse in verse 8. If I can... I'm sorry. There is an inseparable link between salvation and good works. Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on, on these things. The, these things refers to what Paul has already shared. For them to be faithful, for them to be submissive to their rulers and authorities, to be obedient people, to be ready for every good work. He says, insist on those things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is what we want to reinforce here. It's just that... There is an inseparable link between salvation and good works. Good works being the essential evidence of salvation. Do you want to know if you know God? Is your heart convicted by sin in your life? Is there a continual sense in which you repent to God and you try to be obedient? And you try to walk with Him. You try to serve others, to love others. Friends, if there is not this evidence in your life, then you need to ask, am I truly saved? Do I truly know God? There must be works that accompany your salvation. There must be obedience. We'll get to that more. The second thing that the gospel does, it stirs up good works, but it also distills foolish controversy. Listen to verse 9. It says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. There were particular things in this day that really people talked about a lot, and it caused them to avoid the gospel. I shared with you at the beginning of our our Titus series that some of the interpreters of the scriptures would, uh, they would look at the name Abraham in the Old Testament, and Hebrew words, Letters had numerical value, and so they would look at the way Abraham is spelled, and they found that it represented the number 300, or something like that. And then they would begin to think that Abraham, every time the name Abraham was was mentioned, it actually meant 300 servants of God. It didn't really mean just Abraham. And so there, there there was these mystical ways of interpreting the scriptures, and they began to just kind of take off with these things, and then they would discuss these things in the midst of the church, and they would avoid what was really helpful and what was really clear in the scriptures. So they had these mystical interpretations. And there were, se- there were several, there are foolish controversies that Paul says. There are genealogies, so they would go through these lists of names and spend hours just talking about these lists of names and who went where and just avoiding 
what was very important. So they began to get in dissensions about this, quarrels about how the law was to be applied and lived out. We know we're in the, a different age. It's not the old, the old Testament is important, it's inspired, but it's not the law that we live by. It's by Christ and by salvation. So what we want to say is that the gospel, it distills this foolish controversy because it clarifies what's helpful and what's not. It simplifies, reminding us of what's most important. So when Paul deals with the controversy in Galatia over circumcision versus uncircumcision, here's what he says to them. In Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. That's Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, if you want to write that down. So the gospel and good works are excellent and profitable. Right before this, Paul says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. That's the gospel and good works. But speculations get us nowhere. That's the point Paul's making. In fact, they're often used to avoid the gospel because the gospel forces us to change our lives and work for the good of others. Let me touch on just a couple of examples what I think are modern examples. Overzealous speculations about the end times and who the Antichrist is. You find a lot of people, I've found people I try to get in conversations with about the gospel and they want to go immediately to the book of Revelation. And they just want to talk about, man, who who is it? Who's it going to be? But when you try to talk about the gospel and their their lives being changed, they don't want to focus on that for long. And so these overzealous things about the end times. Who is the Antichrist? Also, people in the church who enjoy arguing more than growing in the gospel. You have these people in the church who just thrive on controversy. They would rather be in controversy rather than just studying the scriptures and talking about how do we grow together? How do we live this out? 1 Timothy 6.4 speaks of those who have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Now, there may be some people who, they may not openly stir up controversy, but in their hearts they resist the teaching. They go home and say, well, that was good for somebody. They dismiss it. Listen, because of our sin, we often tend towards being argumentative rather than submissive to the gospel and to its implications for our lives. And so I charge you, friends, to check your heart here. Are you quick to dismiss the things that are said? Are you quick to check your own heart, to evaluate yourself and the ways that your life needs to be changed in light of what's being preached and what's being taught? Paul says that these, we need to avoid foolish controversies. These things are unprofitable and worthless. But on the other end of the spectrum, the gospel not only distills foolish controversy, but it deals with necessary conflict. Look at verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You see, the other end of this controversy requires more aggressive tactics. With those controversies that are unhelpful, we just we walk away from the conversation. We don't get involved in that. But then with this person who continues in this, we are to warn them once and warn them twice, and then we are to intentionally avoid the person. Now, this just doesn't sound very nice in the church, does it? 
The problem is that you feed their sin by continuing with them in this endless pursuit. You make them think this is okay. You endanger the body by making them think that it's important. And then you endanger yourself. If you continue in these foolish controversies, you endanger yourself, your own growth in the gospel, and also your productivity in the gospel. In one sense, it's very much about stewardship, friend. That God has called us to live the gospel and not be involved in these things that hinder us in growing and in ministering to others. Proverbs 14, 7, I read this this week and, and laughed. Leave the presence of a fool. For there you do not meet words of knowledge. I wondered why people walk out during the sermon. Then I read this and I was like, well, it makes sense. Just don't hang around. The instruction is two clear warnings and then avoid them. Notice there is patience and there's graciousness here. But there's also truth. We would do well to remember here, 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness or deceit, but rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. Now, the part that says, know know in verse 11, that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. You see, they're condemned by their own resistance to the truth. They're condemned because they continue in sin. You see, they've been corrected. There's been an attempt to restore them, but they continue in their sin. They resist the correction. So... A lifestyle characterized by hard-hearted resistance to truth and continual sin is not the lifestyle of one who's truly believed in Christ. So one of the greatest dangers, hear this, hear this, one of the greatest dangers is that one will receive the greatest punishment when one continues to hear the truth and doesn't respond. You see, the greatest punishment that people receive will, that is held it will be for those who sit in the church Sunday after Sunday and don't respond to the truth. Who don't respond to the truth. I find this in Luke 12, verse 48. You studied this today. There's a passage about the faithful slave and then the unfaithful slave. And Jesus says, for, From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. Listen, if you hear the truth day after day, Sunday after Sunday, if you have access to the Word of God, yet you don't read it, and res- but you resist it, you've been entrusted with much, with much opportunity. So much will be required of you at Judgment Day. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. So, are you responding to the truth? Every time you hear it, are you responding to it? If not, you will be self-condemned. It's on you. You did it. You disobeyed. You didn't listen. It's on you. The last point, the gospel builds. The gospel builds. This is verses 12 through 15. First, the gospel builds partnerships and it also builds productive lives. First, we just see in these these partnerships, verses 12 and 13, Paul says to Titus, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So we see what's going to happen in Paul's situation, in Titus' situation. Paul's going to send one or the other of these men, either Artemis or Tychicus, to Titus, and one of these men is going to replace Titus at Crete, as the minister there, as helping the people. Titus, in return, is to to go back to Paul. 
Titus is going to receive a new ministry assignment. I shared at the beginning of our Titus series that sometimes the pastoral ministry must be very global. Just by nature of it, it must be glo- it, they have to move around sometimes. The gifts need to be shared. Ministers sometimes need to go to places that have less access to the gospel. Churches need to send them out. You've done this through Byron at Grace Baptist. This is something Crosspoint needs to continue to do. There are places that continually need the gospel. And so Titus was to receive a new ministry assignment. But what we see is this partnership between these men, where these men are working together. They're flexible. They're willing to do what the needs demand. So, he asked Titus to come after one of these men replaces him. And then he says, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. You see, Paul and his friends, including Titus, were to exemplify the good works that the whole body is called to. What Paul is saying is there's going to be a couple of guys who are going to pass through Crete on their way somewhere else. When they do, I want you to provide for everything they need. And so, when they pass through, either they would stay with Titus, or maybe they would even leave sooner than that, but Titus was to make sure that every one of their material demands were met. Make sure they had food, make sure they had clothing, everything that they needed. And in this sense, these men, this partnership between these men, one was a lawyer, Paul was a tent maker, it was from all different walks of life, but they exemplified what the body is called to be and what the body is called to do. The gospel builds partnerships, but it also, and it also builds these productive lives. Verse 14 is where we're going to conclude this morning. The verse actually translates, and again, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. You see, what Paul is doing is he's summarizing the whole book of Titus, what he's focused on throughout. He's saying, and again, let me remind you, let our people to devote themselves, learn to devote themselves to good works to meet urgent needs and not be unfruitful. This is the focus of the entire book of Titus, that good works flow from salvation. Let let me say this, and this is a large part of our our challenge this morning. At this point in in Baptist life and in church life in general in the United States, we've we've seen a huge decline in the church in general. In Baptist life in particular, you see a large decline in churches. You see many churches dying. I said this a few Sundays ago, that you can go to many churches in Baptist life and they have several uh, senior adults, but for the most part, that church has somehow just no longer meets the needs of the neighborhood. People are no longer streaming in. No longer do you see many people coming to know Christ through the ministry of that body. The church is dying. Friends, if, if Crosspoint dies at some day, I don't, I'm not saying it will, but if Crosspoint dies, the blame will be laid on the people. The people will be responsible. And let me clarify why. You have elders and you have the scriptures yourself so that any man who stands in this pulpit 
His job is under review after every Sunday. After every Sunday, I go home wondering, you know, am I going to be up next week? I'm not sure. His job is under review after every Sunday. If he's not preaching the scriptures, he can be taken out. It's the elders and your responsibility to make sure that that man is preaching in accordance with the word of God. So, it will not be a preacher's fault if Crosspoint dies. If Crosspoint no longer meets the needs of Baton Rouge, of the needs of the nations, it will be the people's fault. And this is not anything against you. I'm not pinpointing anybody and thinking of people when I say this. But what I'm saying is the people are called to devote themselves to good works, to help cases of urgent need, and to lead fruitful, not unfruitful, lives. And if Crosspoint ceases to meet the needs of the community, of the nations for the gospel, it will not be a preacher's fault. It will be the people. It will be on you. On you. And so, the question we must ask in this is how do we learn? Notice that word, learn. It's a process. Paul acknowledged it's a process. How do we learn to devote ourselves, to sell ourselves out in every way to good works? Friends, when I look at the scriptures, it doesn't sound to me like our jobs are to take up every aspect of our lives. Our lives are to be filled with good works that glorify God. Every aspect of our lives. So how do we learn to devote ourselves to good works? I want to offer a few practical, hopefully helpful ways that we can learn to devote ourselves to good works. First, we balance entertainment and work. And when I say work, I don't mean just vocation. I mean in general, uh, just working, being active, doing good things, doing good for the glory of God. We balance entertainment or rest and work. And, and what I mean by this is often our evenings and our weekends are considered our time of rest. It's kind of for us, right? That's when we rest up. And that's good. I, I believe that we all need some sense of a Sabbath of rest. But are you resting so you can glorify God more? through a healthy lifestyle, or are you just indulging, being selfish? Remember that rest is not an end in itself. Rest is so that you might go and do more, be more productive for the glory of God. Undisciplined amounts of TV are not helpful, nor are they productive ways of resting. College students, I want to challenge you to get in, hopefully they'll listen to this, I'm not many college students here, but get involved with the family aspects of this body. Help families with kids. Ask a deacon if you can help with widow ministry. Find ways to get involved to do good with the church. Secondly, so balance entertainment and work. Rest time and really and trying to do good. Secondly, find, more, find constructive ways of spending time together as a family. Again, I'm not saying we're not doing this. I just This is one thing that I think can be helpful and I'm thinking here of serving together at shelters. Take an evening, and if there's a service opportunity available, take your kids to work for 30 minutes, it might be, but work at a shelter. It's, it's helpful even for those people to see children there. So even though you might feel like a burden, you're not. The church is about family. 
of all types, all ages. Also, local mission opportunities, church work days, bring them up here. And then also, prioritize big mission opportunities. If the church goes to Mexico or the church goes somewhere else, it may seem like it's expensive. But friends, your children need to see the kingdom of God in other places. They need to see your sacrifice, what's important to you, and you bringing them with you on mission trips, even if it costs. Thirdly, we intentionally seek time and activities with other people. This requires planning and hospitality. It doesn't matter if the house is perfect, but just invite people over, call people, and this is how we know what's going on in people's lives. If you're not talking to people, they're not just going to come up to you and share all their burdens, or most won't. But if you want to know what people's needs are, you've got to be around them. You've got to get involved in their lives. And then lastly, open your home for temporary residence. This is what Paul was telling Titus to do. As people pass through, invite them in, take care of them, provide for their needs, and then send them on their way. Many of you in the body have done this for us. We've been temporary residents at several houses of people in our body. But this is what the gospel enables you to do, to open your doors, to provide for people's needs, whatever those needs may be. So I challenge you, cross point, ask yourself, how do you learn to devote yourselves to good works? And we should remember in all of this that we're not doing it without God's help. They're done in the power of God by His strengthening us. Remember, this is what the gospel does. This is what the gospel drives in us. This is the ripple effect of what God's done in our lives. Write down Philippians 2.13. I just want to read it to you now. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Every good that you do is a result of what God's doing in you. You don't wait for the feeling necessarily. You do it. And God will be the one producing it in you. One last thing for Christians. If you, if you feel like you just don't know how to do this, you don't know how to live out your faith on a daily basis, will you just email or something? Will you just ask? Ask to be mentored by someone? Email me. I'll, I'll try to help find that. But I want to ask you, are you living a fruitful productive life for the glory of God and if you don't feel like you know how to do that then ask ask email me this week find someone to mentor you to talk to you about this this is the challenge for you how do you learn to devote yourself to good deeds and for the unbeliever here the salvation that God offers you is to renew you is to wash away all your sins and to make you new. To justify you so that he sees you as righteous, just like his son. If you don't accept this salvation, you will be eternally separated from God. You will receive punishment for sins, for your sins. It will be on you. God is gracious. He desires for you to come. He desires for you to know Him, to enjoy Him, and to enjoy eternal life. Not just a length of life, but a quality, a type of life. So, I'm going to invite Stephanie to come up.
and we're going to sing this morning. If you want to talk after, please come. I'll be up here. And then Mr. Al and Dr. David are in here, but they're always available to talk and willing to visit with you. So let's pray together. Lord, I pray. God, that we would recognize the greatness of your love towards us in Christ Jesus. Lord, that it would cause constant ripple effects in our lives. Lord, that good works would flow. Father, I pray that you would teach us the practical ways that we are to live out our faith on a daily basis, that we are to do good to those around us, Father. Lord, we know that there are opportunities if we just open ourselves up to those opportunities. God, that you will even bring them our way. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful, obedient to you. And Lord, we do pray that your light would shine brightly to those who don't know you. Jesus, thank you for your goodness, your kindness. It's in your name we pray.